welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, my friends. It's a lively bunch. I love it. If you want to find your seats, make your way back, that'd be great. Before we jump in this morning, I'll just say a couple of things by way of announcement. The first of which is uh, we had the last, last Sunday and then Tuesday and Wednesday, we had these listening circles. And if you, if you remember Tuesday and Wednesday, um, it was a little chilly. And so some of you weren't able to make it, uh, which we recognize and understand. But, um, and some of you may not have been able to make it for other reasons. We want to make that available to you. So um, the link to the, the questions that we were asking, basically, uh, is still available on, on the Internet. And uh, there should be a link in the Awaken Weekly as well. If you want to answer those questions and just send those to us by email, um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So please feel free to email those to me, micah at awakencommunity.com. That would be awesome. And then I don't know if you knew this or not, but it is Black History Month. And so I wanted to um, start this morning with a quote from a guy named um, W.E.B. Dubois. And he says this. He says, how shall integrity face oppression? What shall honesty do in the face of deception? Decency in the face of insult, self-defense before blows. How shall desert and accomplishment meet despising, detraction, and lies? What shall virtue do to meet brute force? And here's the kicker. There are so many answers and so contradictory and such differences for those who, on the one hand, meet questions similar to this once a year or only in a decade, and those who face them hourly and daily. Um... I want to encourage you um, as a church that's predominantly of one skin color, um, for those of us who, well, no, I'm just going to encourage you, um, take this month and learn something new. Um, Actually, go find something, um, investigate something that maybe you haven't as it relates to black history uh, and what it means to be uh, a person who lives in this country and in the culture that we live in. Uh, My pastoral admonishment and encouragement to you. Uh, Last week, Dominique was here, um, and many of you spoke highly. You, You thanked us for bringing him in. I just want to say... If you are interested or you bought the book, Dominique um, messaged me this last week and there's um, sort of a follow-up that he's been working on that that goes with the book. Um, It's not available for public consumption yet, but he sent it to me. So if you did buy the book and you're interested in that conversation, um, if you want to message me or get in touch with me, I can make that available to you so long as you commit to like not selling it on the internets or something like that, all right? Um, So Dominique wanted to make that available to you. Um, So... With that, um, if you will, open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and we are in a study called The Hope of Glory uh, in the book of Colossians. It was 1995, Uh, I was uh, 18 years old, and I had just uh, got, I got dropped off by my brother at Colorado Christian University. I registered for classes and, and for school, having never stepped foot on this campus, Colorado Christian, never saw the place, but I decided I would go there. And so my brother dropped me off, and I was a declared youth ministry major from day one. Uh, I was one of the few college kids that didn't change their major. Evidently, the, the average is like four times. I think that might even be higher now. But I never changed. I never wavered. It was youth ministry all the way. And I met a guy named R.J. Kerper. R.J. was, uh, if you imagine, sort of a, a skinny uh, runner, Groucho Marx, right? Big, giant mustache before stashes were in. He rocked that thing hardcore. And R.J. was my youth ministry professor. He's my favorite prof in college. And he, um, on many, many occasions, he loved the book of Colossians. It was one of his favorite books. And on many occasions, he would you know, be talking to us about youth ministry and what it means to like walk with students and to pour your lives into junior hires and senior hires. And 
uh, he, he would get all excited and passionate about this, and he would say, you guys, listen, for some of these kids out there like, who are wandering around trying to figure out which way is up, like, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And he would just say it again, Christ in you is the hope of glory. And we would get all excited and like, you know, jazzed up, like ready to go save the world one kid at a time. And then finally, somebody in our class was like, what does that even mean? <laughs> at which point, we, we had to back the truck up a little bit. Uh, it was a great question, though. What is it, the hope of glory? So we're going we're gonna to dive into that a little bit this morning. If you're new with us, this is week four of a study we're in. Um, so far, we've covered who is Paul. He's the writer of the book. We've looked at Colossae, which is the town, the city that this little group of people met uh, this little church met in and lived in. Uh, we've looked at, uh, we even looked at like, what is the Bible and why is this thing important? Why do we study this? Like, what's its value and how are we approaching it? Um, two weeks ago, when I preached last, we talked about Colossians 1, 15 to 20, which is this really somewhat famous passage in the New Testament known as the Colossian hymn. Many believe that it's one of the first hymns that the early church would have sang or recited together. Um, and Paul, in that passage, is saying a lot, essentially, uh, that Jesus, uh, he's talking about who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's accomplished. Um, he's claiming that in Jesus, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, has become personal, embodied, enfleshed, and, and, and essentially, that the source from which everything has come and everything is held together, and the means by which God is restoring, redeeming all of creation is in fact this person, Jesus, embodied. So this is all in the intro to the letter. Uh, chapter one is basically the introduction, and we're getting to the end of the intro where Paul takes one more opportunity to kind of remind the people why he's writing to them, why these people in this little church, in this little town, in the backside of the Roman Empire mean so much to him, and what God is doing in their midst. Um, this is common where in, in the end of an introduction in, to a letter, you would sort of restate your purpose, you'd restate your authority by which you're writing and sending these words, and that's what Paul is doing this morning. And we're going to see as we look at it, Paul keeps hitting the same note. I told somebody earlier, uh, we were talking about you know, the last few weeks in this, this series, I feel like a broken record in some ways, like I keep saying the same thing over and over again. I'm just preaching the text because that's what Paul's doing. He's saying the same thing in different ways over and over and over again, and that is... That the good news, the gospel, is Jesus plus nothing. That whatever you have heard about God and whatever you've heard about the gospel or the good news of God, that's what gospel means, euangelion, good news in Greek, whatever you've heard about that, wherever you grew up, whatever you drag into this room, whatever experiences you've had or whoever has spoken into what your understanding of the good news is, Paul continually comes back to home base. He keeps coming back to the same... Uh, um, chord or the same tune or the same melody, the same, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, it's a key. It's the same key. He's playing in the same key. He just keeps playing the same chords over and over. And it's Jesus plus nothing is the good news of the gospel. So that's what we're going to do this morning. If you have a Bible, Colossians 1, we'll start in verse 24 of chapter 1. I'll invite you to stand as we read the scripture and then we'll, uh, we'll pray and we'll jump in. Paul writes this, now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it is now disclosed 
to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known, the gen, uh, make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Chapter 2. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all of you who have not met me personally. My goal is that they, that you, may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I'm going to keep going. I forgot to tell the, the booth this, so it's not going to be on the screen. We'll go to verse 8. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Pray with me. God, this morning, as we dig into this passage that Paul has written, I pray that um, I thank you for your living word. I thank you for the living word, which is Christ, alive and well, resurrected and bringing resurrection. I thank you for the written word which bears witness to Jesus, embodied and enfleshed. And God, we thank you for your spirit, which takes the living word and makes it alive in us, in this community. So I pray that that would be true. God, that these words would not just be words, but that they would form us, that they would shape us. Uh, and that in, in some way, we would look more and more like your son Jesus as we come in contact with it, as we encourage each other, and as we uh, seek to follow you, I pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. So here's what I want to do this morning. We're just going to walk through this passage a little bit, uh, and we'll start at the beginning and we'll go to the end. Uh, and I want to pull out a couple of the things Paul's doing that I think are really important, some of the things that are the highlights of, of the arguments he's making or the, the case that he's making. Um, is there any Kleenex in the, in the prayer space over there? I got a, I got a runner. I got a dripper. <laughs> and I figure I'm just going to handle this before it gets too, too out of control. You guys will thank me later. You can go ahead and mute me, Katie. Okay, friends. What am I doing? Blowing my nose. Oh, okay. So we'll start at the beginning. Verse 24. Paul uh, begins to sort of close the introduction to Colossians by reminding them of who he is. And he says this. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. I fill up my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church, which should beg a couple of questions to you. One, how can Paul add anything to Christ's affliction? And two, how can he rejoice in his suffering? Let's take him in turn. Is Paul, is Paul saying that he's adding to the work of Jesus? At which point you'd, you'd conclude that Jesus' work wasn't enough, that there was something to be added to and Paul can add to it, or maybe there's something else going on here. Um, a couple of things that are important for us to understand what Paul is saying when he says, I'm adding to these afflictions that Christ, I'm adding to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Um, the first of which is corporate Christology. 
Um, what I don't mean is uh, the commercialization of the gospel or like uh, commodifying something, a product, and then selling it for profit, though this happens even with the gospel. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Um, I, I'm talking about the paradox of not just imitating Christ, but actually being incorporated into Christ. Um, if you've ever seen a good mob or mafia show, like think The Sopranos or The Godfather, Al Pacino, or um, you know, more recently, um, The Departed, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jack Nicholson, real star-studded cast, Mark Wahlberg, Matt Damon, I mean, that had them all. Good mafia, good, good mafia or mob story, uh, there's this trope or, or sort of theme running through mob stories that is, or often runs through mob stories, and it's this idea that whatever you did to my cousin Vinny, you did to me. You know what I mean? So like, whatever you did to my cousin Vinny, you did it to me, all right? Uh, if, if you, to, from the lowest to the highest in the family, whatever you've done to any number of, any one of the family members, like you've done to the entirety of the family, and then people's heads start getting cut off and horses show up in beds, and you know the whole thing, right? Sorry, that's a godfather thing. I should not have done that. I apologize. Um, at any rate, you get it, right? Whatever you did to my cousin Vinny, you did to me. There is, a, there is a, something that happens in mob stories and movies and films that's analogous to what Paul is saying in this. What's true of Christ is true of those who are in Christ by faith. Let me say that again. What's true of Christ is true of those who are in Christ by faith. Um, a, a different point, Paul talks about being heirs, H-E-I-R, that we're heirs of something that Christ has done. So whatever is afforded to Christ is now afforded to those who are in Christ by faith. Um, he develops this idea in, in his letter to the Corinthians in chapters 1 and chapters 4, and he can say, and then he does it again in Philippians when he says this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his sufferings, Why? becoming like him in his death, so that somehow attaining resurrection from the dead. Whatever's true of Christ is true of those who are in Christ by faith. So, for Paul, there's this corporate nature of being in Christ. And he's not adding to the work of Jesus, but rather he's participating in it. When he says that I'm adding to, or what I'm, I'm gonna, I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, the word that's used there in Greek for affliction is never used of Jesus' work on the cross. So Paul's not equating that to the work of the atonement that's done on the cross, but rather he's saying that in Christ, as Christ suffered, we should not think it odd that we suffer or that I suffer, and that I'm glad to do so, actually, but whatever's true of Christ is true of those who are in Christ by faith. So that's one idea. This corporate Christology helps us understand what he's saying there. And then secondly, the idea of messianic woes. I'm gonna get my teacher on here this morning. Um, in in Jesus' day, there were two, um, two ways of thinking or two breakdowns of, uh, of life, right? We would think about uh, life in, in two categories. There was the present age, and then there was the age to come. Um, if you remember, a guy comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit? Say it louder. Eternal life. If you dig, what, the question he's actually asking, if you dig in the original language, he says, what must I do to inherit the age to come? So for a good Jew in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, you thought about the world in two categories. There was the present age, and then there was the age to come. And the age to come was something that, the, that, that God would do. There would be some sort of moment when God would do something and sort of usher in this new age to come. We call it eternal life in our modern day world. And 
messianic suffering. That before that happened, there would be this period of time in which people may suffer, or in uh, the book of Isaiah, there's the, the suffering servant psalms uh, in, the, in the book of Isaiah, that essentially that this, this person who would bring this about, this transition from one to another, would be this suffering servant. So Jesus, Paul, people in this day would have thought that it's absolute, it makes absolute sense that for this transition from the present age to the age to come to happen, there would be some kind of suffering. Paul takes that and he essentially works with it but challenges it a little bit. I'm gonna erase this just a hair. If we think about it in this way, that there is the present age and then there is this moment of the cross that happens which inaugurates this thing that is the age to come or eternal life or the kingdom of God, Matthew calls it, and that at some point there will be a definitive moment when God will recreate, restore, return, redeem. But in the midst of that, there is suffering at times. There is a tension that exists between the present age and the age to come. Because in the cross and resurrection, something has begun. Something has been inaugurated. Like a new reign and a new rule, a new presidency has been inaugurated, right? We do this every four years where we inaugurate a new president, right? That's what the resurrection is. It's an inauguration ceremony for what will be. But, Paul says, we live in this space in between. Dave Matthews got it right, the space between. Come on now. Right? And so, how can Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings? Does he believe that God is the author of suffering? That God has this grand master plan, this blueprint, where every detail of every moment, of every second is planned out, and anything that happens to you, whether good or bad, is God's plan? I don't think so. I don't actually believe that. But rather, Paul can say, I rejoice in suffering because Paul knows that labor has started. And whenever labor begins something will be born. Think about life. Mom's in the room. When labor comes, when it happens, it, be, it, it hurts, it's painful. And you can rejoice in that suffering, that pain, because you know what will come. New life. So Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Not because I believe God's the author of pain and sorrow and sadness, but rather, the evidence of that pain, the evidence of that suffering in our lives, we can see through the lens of the cross and the resurrection and we know that it does not end in death. That love wins, not death. That it may be dark today or maybe even tomorrow, but darkness will not be our forever. Can I get an amen? That's what Epiphany celebrates. The season of, oh man. Somebody want to close that door? I, have, I will not be able to concentrate if I keep hearing that. Like, is that mine? No, my kids are 10, 12, and 15. Hallelujah, but it's probably somebody's in this room. <laughs> and I feel bad for you. My heart goes out to you, right? That, that paternal instinct. Okay. There's good people in there loving and caring for our children. They're going to be fine. So why can Paul say, I rejoice in my suffering? Because Paul knows that whatever we experience in this season that we see it through the lens of resurrection. And we know that death does not win, that darkness is not the end, but rather that there will be something, a new dawn, a new day, where light is all we know, where there are no shadows. That's why Paul says, I can rejoice in my suffering. So, to those of you here this morning, who maybe are in the midst of suffering, 
who maybe have suffered recently, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional, can I just offer the perspective to see whatever that might be through the lens of the cross and resurrection? And I, don't, I would not argue that we have to attribute our suffering to the hand of God. I think God weeps and is, is as dissatisfied with our suffering at times as we are. But can we see it through a lens where we can say, that pain, that, that struggle, is, is, it's, the, it's the pains of labor, and we know that when there are labor pains that something is being born in me and in the world. Like, here and now and will be. So that's why Paul can say, I'm adding to, I'm participating in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church, which he loves as a pastor. Now, what's all this talk about hidden treasures? In multiple places, Paul talks about these ideas of hidden treasures. Did any of you go on like treasure hunts when you were a kid? Did you ever do this where you like someone hid something and then everyone looked for it? Or maybe you've done this as an adult. I would recommend it. It's just lots of fun. I think this is why National Treasure got that Nick Cage. I mean, such a great performance. Um, Cut me some slack. That's from The Rock. Do you guys remember that one? Cut me some friggin' slack. Did you know he won an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas? Isn't that just amazing? Nicolas Cage won an Oscar. Unbelievable. At any rate, Paul in Colossians says, in two different places, he says in, in chapter 1, verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations but now is disclosed. And then in chapter two, he says it again. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. First and foremost, the word of God is not the Bible in this passage. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but if it's not clear here, I don't know how to help you. Look at what he says. God has given me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So what is the word of God? Is it the book that we hold in our hands? No, it can't be. Paul's writing it. (laughs) So what is it then? Well, he goes on to say, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things were made through him. All things are held together by him. And then in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word of God, according to the Bible, is Jesus the Christ. That's what Paul is making known. That's the mystery that's been kept hidden, that's been veiled, that's been hinted at, Right? Think about the Old Testament, Israel as a people. It's a, it's a move towards revealing something about who God is and what it means to be in relationship with God. Torah, the law, is a hint, it's a shadow, it's a movement toward, it's sort of hinting at, this is what it means to be in relationship with God. Paul in the, and, and the writer of Hebrews even says that the law is a shadow of what was to come and now it's like I wanted to have a bust uh, of a not careful, uh, you know, a person, a sculpted like head and... and why do they even call that a bust? Someone looked that up for me, so I have that at my second hour. I wanted to have like a statue of somebody like cloaked in a, in a, in a like 
sheet or something. You're like, oh, you can kind of like see it's got facial features and it has a nose and it has ears, but you can't like articulate it, right? All of these revelatory acts of Israel and the law and the prophets, and these are, they're veiled attempts. They're, they're sort of pointing at, and then essentially what Paul is saying is, in Christ, the big reveal, right? All the lights are on. You can see all the things that have been hinted at, all the things that have been hidden or not totally revealed. A true apocalypse has, been, has happened. The unveiling is the word apocalypse. That's what Paul's saying. So this mystery that's been hidden or not yet revealed is Christ. This is the point I was trying to make a couple of weeks ago. Christ is the word of God. It's so clear, you guys. The Bible bears witness to the Christ. The words of God, as revealed in scripture, inspired. Gee, I would say the Bible is infallible and, or the word of God is infallible and inerrant. And at 18, it grew a beard. These words in this book are, yes, inspired. Yes, helpful for, for teaching and encouragement and, and knowing what it means to be God's people in the world. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and it has an authoritative voice in the life of the church. Yes, yes, yes. But it is not the word of God. Jesus is. Let's be clear about that. And Paul's clear about that. In Christ, all the lights have been turned on. Everything has been revealed. Whatever has been hidden or veiled or not quite seen has now been seen and is seen. It's like getting to the end of the, the treasure hunt when you've been looking for this thing and you've gotten the clues all along the way and then you finally like get in the room and ah, there it is. And the lights come on and Nicolas Cage is standing there with all the treasure, right? That's it. That's the moment. That's what's happened in Jesus, Paul says. The lights have been turned on. Now, this verse that inspired the whole series. Paul says, the mystery, which is now fully revealed and known, the Christ, Jesus, is now alive and at work by the Spirit in you. Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's tease that out. First and foremost, when he says in you, it's plural. That's not to say it's not true of us personally, but what Paul's doing here is a collective you. He's saying, Christ in you, church, Colossae, Christ in you, awaken, Christ in you, whatever church of Jesus you are across the world, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Oh, man. TBS. How many of you love TBS? They show great movies on TBS. Like, if you're bored and you, you holla back there, I see those hands, and how many here from Shelby County? If you're bored and you just need something, like, flip to TBS or AMC, and it's likely got an old classic. The other day, Castaway was on. We flipped to it, and one of my daughters is like, what is this? And I'm like, this is an Oscar-winning performance, right? <laughs> Tom Hanks on the island, the FedEx guy, goes down in a plane. You guys remember Wilson? Wilson! There's this moment in Castaway when he's standing on the beach, he's just recently been plane wrecked, not shipwrecked, plane wrecked, and he's alone on the island and he's trying to figure out like, how do I, like, how's this gonna go? How's this gonna end? And he's standing there and he's like looking and, and, and you see this blinking light off in the distance, do you guys remember this scene? And he's kind of, and, and then finally he like lift, lifts his eyes and he sees off in the distance this blinking light. 
And it's like, everything changes. He just goes into total panic mode. He starts screaming, jumping up and down. Hey, hey! He's like throwing things and he's trying to find fire. The ship bobbing in the ocean is the hope of rescue. So this ship that's out there, it immediately becomes the symbol, the beacon, the hope for potential rescue. Paul is saying, Christ in you, church, is the hope of glory. What does he mean by that? Who says glory these days anyhow? You know, you go to Brasa free lunch, you're like, man, it's just glory out there, isn't it? What does he mean? If you would, close your eyes. If, I'm not gonna like, throw anything at you, I'm just gonna walk you through something. I want you to, in your mind's eye, I want you to try to follow this. Imagine, if you will, a vision of the future of your life, of the world's life, of our planet, where everything that has been broken is restored, where everything that has been lost has been found, where everything that has been divided has been reconciled. This is the vision, the picture of the future that the resurrection of Jesus is saying will happen. This is glory. This is glory. This is shalom. You can open your eyes if you will. This is the vision that the Bible is putting forth as where it's all headed. Paul says, Christ in you, church, the spirit of the resurrected Jesus, alive and at work in you, is the hope of that. So when people find you, what they find is really stingy, really judgmental, really dumb. Oh, wait a second. No. When they find you, church, when they find you, follower of Jesus, what they should be finding is the hope of this vision, the possibility of this being true, even here, even now, that like, while it's winter, there are little things of, of life and green things bursting up among us right here and right now that in the midst of this dry and cracked and broken world, there's new life happening in and through you. So Paul says to the church, you, when you show up at a party, when you go to the Super Bowl party tonight and you vote for or you cheer for, ooh, any Patriots fans out there? A couple, one in the back. I love a good dynasty. I gotta be honest, I, when Tiger Woods was just mowing down the field every week, I loved it. Because people will look back and they'll be like, you watched the Pats and Brady? And I'll be like, yeah, that was sweet. I don't really care who wins. But when you show up tonight at a Super Bowl party, what shows up? Is it the hope of glory? Is it the hope of a vision of a different kind of world, a new kind of humanity, one that's been restored and redeemed and, and reconciled one to another. This is, why, this is why I started the way I did, to say, hey, it's Black History Month, friends. Here's a narrative of unreconciled peoples for the course of our, the better part, arguably, all of American history. What does it mean to be reconciled? If this gospel isn't speaking to that, it's not the gospel. Can I get an amen? amen? So when you show up, church, Christ in you, 
evidence of the resurrected Jesus at work in your life, when you show up, Christ in you, it's the hope of glory. It's the possibility for a new tomorrow. It's the potential for forgiveness. It's the possibility for justice. Not because of you. No, this is what Paul's saying. Not because of you, per se. You play a part in it. Don't demean yourself to the point of nothing. No. But Christ in you at work, alive. That's the hope of glory. This is why RJ would stand on the table and say, youth pastors, listen. You are. Christ in you is the hope of glory. This is why Paul says to this little church, and this is what I say to you this morning. Your life matters. What you do in the world, how you show up, it matters. I'll close with this. Paul, he he, he finishes this chapter by telling these people that he is strenuously contending. I don't know if you remember, I'm I'm on movies this morning. Oh, gosh, it's, uh, Tom Cruise, he's a lawyer. A few good men. He's like, I object. I strenuously object. Paul says, I strenuously contend in this work with all the energy at, uh, and Christ at work in me. And his goal would be that the church would be encouraged and filled with the knowledge and maturity of, of the, the wisdom that God has revealed in Jesus. He says, he is the one we proclaim. Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend. A few, I don't know, months ago, a year ago, I came across these three categories which have shaped how I understand my work as a pastor. And I'm gonna put them in ascending order because I believe this is how it goes. Order, disorder, and reorder. Friends, the life of faith for arguably everybody always takes this path. The first stop is order, where everything is in line, we have all the answers, they're easy, they come to us, we know who's in, we know who's out. Conservative fundamentalism of any religious ilk lives here, okay? Youth, immature faith lives here order. Everything is clear. Friends, just the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough. That's here. For many, the answers stop working. They face a crisis, they start thinking more deeply about something, they start seeing the the, 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 the immaturity, the, the, the greenness, the freshness of this, and they start asking questions and things start falling apart. And a lot of people freak out right here. And they say, oh, I'm losing my faith. And I would say, no, you're actually just getting in the game. You're just getting in the game. This is when it gets good. Many of you have found Awaken in this, where you're like, I don't know what I believe anymore, and it's all lying here on the ground, and I'm not even sure what to pick up and what to leave behind. I called it my theological yard sale, where I took everything out of the house, I brought it out, and I was like, that's gotta go. I can't lose that. Not sure about that. Are you tracking? That's disorder, Right? This is also the place where a lot of young people, a lot of college students, a lot of skeptics, and a lot of critics live. It's easy to live here because you just point fingers and say, oh, that's dumb. (sighs) Don't do that. 
This is what we're after, reorder. My work as a pastor, I am giving my life to this, where you as a community of faith, you move beyond the simplicity of order, beyond the skepticism of disorder, into deep and profound faith, because you have come in contact with the, the beautiful, good news about God, that Jesus has done something in resurrection that screams to the cosmos, I want it all back. I'm redeeming, I'm restoring, I'm remaking it, and it's happening in and through the work of Jesus, and it can happen in you, where we just say, I don't know much, but I know that God is love. I don't know much, but I know that God is restoring and reconciling us one to another. I don't know much, but I know that God is about justice for those who don't have justice. Friends, if this church and if I, as a pastor, this is why I'm I'm so connected to what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I strenuously contend with all the energy in me. For what purpose? That you might be mature, complete, lacking nothing, so that you can walk confidently into the world and show up wherever it is you show up and say, friends, there's good news. And it's not that you're out and I'm in. It's that God has done something for any and for all. Step into it. So RJ was right 25 years ago. Christ in you, church, is the hope of glory. It's the hope of a vision, of a new future, of a different tomorrow. And if you don't need that, then God bless you. Have fun with nachos and buffalo dip tonight. Like, honestly, I wish you well. But if you are longing for something that anchors you, I want you to know the Christ that I have found in this stage of my faith. I'm more convinced about the Christ than I ever have been. I'm more in love with this person than I ever have been. I'm more committed to this than I ever have been in my life and I want it so badly for you. That's what I want to make in the world. So I'm strenuously contending to shape a community that lives from this place where we stand on a solid foundation knowing who God is, what Jesus has done, and who we've been called to be. So Christ in you, church, it's the hope of glory, or at least it can be. Pray with me. God, as we think about what it means to be your people, what it means to be people of faith in this Jesus who's at work in the world, redeeming, restoring, renewing, reconciling. My hope and my prayer is that we, this community, myself, would be swept up in it, that we would be found rooted in works of justice and of hope and of mercy and of forgiveness and of love, and that when we show up, that you at work in us would be the hope of a future, the hope of a different kind of tomorrow, of glory, where there are no tears, where there is no sadness, where there are no shadows, where everything is in the light, everything is restored, everything is made new. So Holy Spirit, in the next moment of silence, and as we sing and as we join our voices together, would you seal it in our hearts? Whatever I've said that's not true, I pray that it would be forgotten. But if it's true, God, seal it in our hearts. Holy Spirit, speak. 
find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.